0: Welcome to Let's Get Political, a podcast dedicated to providing you with all the information you need to know to make informed decisions without the media spin. I'm your host, Benjamin Copeland, and with me is my co-host, Jessica Hargis. In this episode, we talk to Justice Rebecca Huddle. She's an Associate Justice of the Texas Supreme Court, and she talks to us today about judicial elections in Texas, something a lot of Texans don't know much about. We talk about the pros and cons of all the various ways that judges are selected in the United States, and it's a really great conversation. We're glad that you get to join us. Hey, Jessica, you know something I've noticed about my students and really about people in general? That that they don't know about the courts, whether it's the federal courts or the state courts and, you know, in the news. I know. And in the news today, there's a lot of news about the courts and people don't know that we actually elect judges here in Texas and a lot of states elect judges.
1: Yeah, I think there's like eight, uh, if you go up to the Supreme Court, because we have, what, five levels of courts in Texas, and I will tell you that I didn't know that much before um, coming into the teaching realm, because when I was just working, I mean, I thought I was super engaged and involved, and I always studied the federal court system, but when I started teaching, I realized, wow, Texas has five different levels, and we elect all of them, and I can't name at even five Hard that was really yeah that was a big thing for me too so i'm really big on talking to my students about it and over and over and over explaining it and plus it's super interesting at the supreme court level how we split it up because you know everyone's like oh scotus oh the u.s supreme court and so they talk about that and they just know that there's nine justices if we're lucky but they don't realize that we have two supreme courts in texas so yeah, yeah it's a
0: resort. so you know, I thought that this would be a really good time to talk to somebody that's in the know. And uh, I know Justice Rebecca Huddle, who is a justice on the Texas Supreme Court. No way. Yeah. It's so, so awesome. And she agreed to come onto the show and talk to us about judicial elections and all of the Things that go on with these, these elections, because they're low information elections, meaning oh, yeah, that
1: people don't go down ballot and look at that stuff.
0: Yeah, nobody researches who's running for judge in their area, much less who's running for the Texas Supreme Court or the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals. So... Um, I think it'd be great if we talk to somebody who's on the inside and get a little bit of uh, inside baseball, if you will.
1: Oh, my God. Yes, I'm super excited. You know, this is my this is what I like. This is I'm to get somebody on the inside, ask her some of these questions that I have. I mean, you read it in the book, and then you try and tell it to your students. But somebody who's actually in there. Yes, please bring her on. Yeah, I'm excited. I'm, I'm ready to get political yeah. with
0: this. Uh, let's uh, This this will be great. Well, let's let's go ahead and talk to her. Let's do it. We're here with Justice Rebecca Huddle of the Texas Supreme Court. We're really glad to have you. Thanks for coming on the show.
2: I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: And today uh, our topic is going to be about judicial selection, something that a lot of people don't know a whole lot about. Let's just start out with how do we select judges in Texas? What is our system that we have now
2: well sure that's a great place to start the thing that i think is easiest to explain is that we elect our judges in partisan elections so you vote for judges when you go to the ballot box in november um or in the case of the primary races uh in march just like you vote for um you know who ought to be the leader of the executive branch the gubernatorial races who ought to be in the legislative branch your house representatives and your state senators so when um, we say sure.
0: partisan we mean that there's going to be a republican next to the candidate's name or a democrat next to the candidate's name yes
2: yeah, so so your name appears that's exactly right your name appears on the ballot with an indicator of the, of of your of your party affiliation so r in the case of republican or d in the case of democrat
0: and that's a, a little bit of shorthand for a person who's probably not going to look at the candidates down ballot, right? They're, they're not going to um, really study who these people are, what their policies are. So the cheat sheet, if you will, is Republican Democrat. But then that has a lot of consequences, doesn't it, for the judicial branch?
2: Well, it, it really does, and I want to, before we get to that, kind of footnote what I just said, because while judges are on the ballots, when we we'll go into the ballot box, there's also a another mechanism that results in appointments of judges to the bench by the governor in lots of cases, and that those, those appointments arise when a judge, whether it's a district judge or a judge on the high court retires or passes away or or leaves the office in the middle of a term. And in those cases, the governor has the appointment power, sometimes requiring the advice, the consent of the confirmation by the Senate. Um, And so in effect, we have a bit of a dual or hybrid system, sometimes appointments, but the the, by and large, um, judges are selected based on partisan partisan
1: election. Just to be clear, the appointments are not for all five levels, because that's one of the things that I start off with my students. You know, Of course, everybody knows the U.S. Supreme Court. That's it. When I talk about the courts, are like, oh, yeah, the U.S. Supreme Court. I'm like, no, that's federal. So in the state, we have five different levels. And so each level, um, aside from maybe municipality, um, they're all elected. But the appointment process doesn't go all the way down to your justice court, right? That's only the district and higher people.
2: That, that's right. And there are, you're, you're right, Right. There are county courts, for example, and for county courts, uh, the appointment power lies with the county commissioners. So, the local, the heads of local government.
1: Those people that nobody knows who those people are at all. Excellent. I mean, the pandemic was good for maybe one thing, and now half of my class can name their county court judge. That's it. Um, I mean, no offense to whoever loved the pandemic time and learned three languages and didn't have children at home. But everybody else, that's pretty much all I got out of that. So yes, the council. Okay, so uh, the appointment process, how do you get on the radar to get appointed? I think
2: probably lots of different ways. The very bribery number
1: one, right? Bribery. No, no. 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 Okay. <laughs> no. Just checking. You never know. I mean, I have a little <laughs> bit of money saved up. I'm just saying. Okay. No, so it's not- no, no,
2: no, no, not that at all. Um, and <laughs> there is a, a website. There is a a portal that allows you to see the judicial application. So you apply. On paper, as you would for any of the many, many, many hundreds of appointment appointed offices. I governor, never knew that yes. that's crazy
1: yes. So for the justice judges and what you're just like hey that's an opening I'm in I've I'm qualified he needs to know who I am hey, look
0: at me I'm over I here I had no idea
1: that was how it worked <laughs> yeah. well I'm gonna add that to my little tip yeah. class look like I'm all smart all right cool so you just apply and you're like hey you know I think I can do this job for, yeah, I mean that's where you start,
2: and and for judges there is you know there are appointments to all kinds of boards, right. And commissions, all kinds of things, and so that that actually is a great way to get involved if you have some expertise or some you know thing you really care about and you want to serve the state. There are many many opportunities there, so so I hope you'll take a look peek at that. But um, but if you're applying for a judicial appointment, then there is kind of some additional process behind that and there's a very lengthy questionnaire about you know what cases have you worked on Tell us who, you know the names of the lawyers who were your opposing counsel, tell us the names of the judges you've appeared for, all the cases you've tried. And so there is this teasing out of, of, of the kinds of qualifications you would want in, in a judge. you know the more important the court, I think the more the more investigation and diligence the state does, Uh, in terms of, you know, figuring out whether you're the right person uh, for the bench. And so there's a, there's an application process. There's an interview process. There is a process where they call your references and there, there is vetting. uh, There is. Well, and you
1: were, you were a partner in a firm when you were appointed. So, I mean, it's not like, Hey, I just started, I'm working my hundred hours a week. Like every other lawyer, let me do this. This is serious stuff.
2: Right. And I had served um, six years as an, Court of Appeals judge. And so I had, in addition to what I could write down on my application, sort of a developed body of work, you know, hundreds of opinions that I had authored. And uh, when I went through the interview process to get this appointment to the Supreme Court, it was very clear in the interview that one gentleman in particular had studied that. And had all kinds of questions about, you know, not unlike what we just saw in the latest United States Supreme Court confirmation, when people sort of taking snippets from my opinions, asking me about this, asking me about
1: um, my view on X, Y, or Z. And for those people who don't really read court opinions, sorry, Ben wants to go back to qualifications. um, So court opinions can range, right? I mean, I always thought I was watching the Ketanji Brown Jackson and, you know, court opinions can range. First of all, you had over 400 opinions from your lower courts. And if they just take one or two, and then they take one paragraph out of it, that's, that's pretty much not explaining what's going on now, is it? Because I've always told people, if you want to see how to write well, take a Supreme Court decision, Texas, US, take a court decision, because they have intros, they show you how to use backup, they show you how to use proper sources. I mean, it's like a whole, not everything in your decision is going to be what you're saying it's building up to the response or the that's right that's right and and you know
2: people say wow do do your opinions need to be so long you know it's one of our goals (laughs) to make opinions really accessible my theory of writing is that i ought to be able to explain something and the basis for our decision so that anybody can read it anyone who does not need to be an expert or certainly not a judge. That's my goal in writing, is to make it understandable for for anyone. But absolutely, what you're right to point out what we put in an opinion is the distillation of many exponentially more pieces of information that that need to be distilled down.
0: So, And in some ways, you have to be much more transparent about your opinion when you're in the courts than you do when you're one of you know in one of the other branches because you have to explain why you are ruling the way that you're ruling whereas the the executive branch can just come up with an executive order and just say this is what i felt like wanting to do today or it it is an extra burden to have to really explain yourself, which then opens you up to a lot of criticism. But it
1: brings you back to those qualifications. So one of the things I think is interesting is, of course, the US, the federal courts in general, like that's my area. And so when I teach that, I'm like, what are the qualifications to be on the court? And the qualifications are get nominated. That's it. (laughs) And the students are like shocked. They're like, what about law degrees? What about knowledge of the law? Nothing. Nothing. And so once I get them over that shock, then they're like, oh, I guess in the 1700s, there were no law school. You know, you have to walk them through why it was the way it was, but it's not like we're picking Bob off the street. Bob's not going to be the next U.S. Supreme. I mean, Ketanji Brown Jackson's barely going to make it with all these questions she's got. I don't think Bob's going to handle it very well. Right. But in Texas, then you get to the Texas one and the qualifications just are shocking there. I worked, like I said, I worked as a paralegal for many years. And one of my jobs, I ran a legal department with a PhD can actually in our area we could have run it was so funny so i'd go to courts at the lower courts all the time justice courts all the time and i'd have the law and i'm like quoting the law and the guy behind the court with his boots on the desk is like yeah i don't care about that lady i don't like your attitude <laughs> done and i'm like what the law and so then you try and explain this to students that there are zero qualifications at the justice court you gotta be 18 and be voted in let's talk a little well, about to be, these qualifications. to be fair they
0: have to take a class <laughs>
1: Oh, well, they after elected, they
0: get elected, so, you know. Yeah.
1: That guy yeah. on the court, I got held in contempt because I didn't wear pantyhose, apparently. That's still a thing in Texas courts. So you can hold somebody in contempt for pantyhose. He actually didn't like my earrings, but that's not on the books. So he held me in contempt of court for the pantyhose thing, so.
0: Oh, no. So, so Justice so, Huddle, yeah. what can you do about that retroactively? Is there any- Yes, the Rockwall uh, <laughs> Justice Court. I
1: still have that guy's name somewhere. Hang on let me
0: yeah.
2: Yeah. So, so Texas is a huge, huge state and, you know, the, the population centers are, are clustered and then, and we have a vast, just huge diversity in terms of what our communities look like across the state. And so you're right. JP's, um, that says the piece, no, no law degree required but I think that overall i'm going to come to their defense because i think that overall the folks in communities i, I take it you're probably in a rural community oh yeah uh, yeah. Uh, yeah i think that, that i was. think that, that folks do a, a pretty good job of ferreting out who is a person in their community they trust to handle disputes and and i think jps like juries by and large occasionally get it wrong but by and large most of the time
0: Get it right. Well, just like any profession, you've got your good people, you got your bad people. I mean, especially professors. Um, I'll I'll let the listeners decide. Who's oh, the good professor and who's the bad one? Probably on the one here. not wearing the pantyhose. But, that's all
1: I <laughs> No, but I just always think, you know, you start at the very bottom and as if justice courts are not important at all, but they handle, well, I don't have the updated for 2020, but it's millions at the lowest level of cases and they're dealing with a lot. And so to think that the when the Constitution of Texas was created, the founding fathers of Texas were like, you know what? They should be like the rest of us and they should understand the basic issues that come before them so that they can understand what's fair or not. And then you don't start having to actually know the law until you start going higher and higher. And we recently just you know, updated that. So just getting us back on to the qualifications mm-hmm. I'm not. I mean, that guy, he and I just had it out. We just saw a lot of each other. But when you really get into the nitty gritty, I mean, even county courts, I think are fascinating because as I said, the county judge isn't really judging anybody. You've got the other courts in the county level that are really doing the work of the county because the county judge is more executive in most of what he's doing in the, in the more populated areas. So what did we just um do you want to talk about the qualifications or how we went about it yeah, or what well, we were
0: trying to there was a constitutional amendment that upped the qualifications on judges very very slightly yeah, we can talk about that. Really, but that was quickly. district
1: and up, right? That wasn't all of them.
0: District and up, correct? You know, it did it did put in a provision where for the last ten years you can't have had your law license suspended or revoked or even the subject of suspension. So there is that. You do have to on the highest courts be practicing law for the last ten years. But then as you get lower, I think it's eight years for district judge, and then uh, maybe a little bit lower what about the qualifications for judgment? I there are no qualifications at the federal level, but then again, that's a real difficult job to get to because of the appointment process. So what about the qualifications for judge in Texas? How do you feel about that?
2: Yeah, I would argue that it's a, that it is, you know, there are some barriers to entry, just if you're talking about putting your name on the ballot, that takes some work and effort and in a depending on where you are in a rural community it takes I think some confidence that you are a well-known member of the community and trusted and so there is some reputational qualification sure. I think and sure. um, when you move to the more densely populated communities though you know it's it's not really possible for just take in the, in the city of Houston five million people, to know you and understand your reputation. So as as you get to a larger population density community, there's quite a bit of work that goes into running a campaign and actually campaigning. And and the theory of the system is that the voters will ferret that out, right? That the voters will inform themselves that they will read whoever it is that writes about the candidates and their respective qualifications, or that they will ask a member of the bar what they think, somehow inform themselves. And and I think that the, and that is a maybe a system that works better in some communities than others. In some communities, it just isn't feasible just because of the sheer size. Uh, We know that lots of voters don't necessarily get informed about the judges' qualifications on the ballot. There are simply too many in our large population centers for anyone to reasonably educate themselves about who the better candidate is, unfortunately. And so that's one of the things that has led all different kinds of folks, legislators, judges, everyone, to think about whether that system really is is the
0: best system. Right. And then we could move to nonpartisan judicial elections like Uh many states have, but then that comes with a lot of problems of its own. People know I'm from Arkansas. Arkansas has nonpartisan judicial elections. As you go down ballot, and that's just a little state too, and there's still a lot of judges as you go down ballot, how do you know who to vote for? I mean, you're you're just looking at name recognition at that point. Do I know this person? Do I like this person's name? Did I see their billboard once or twice? Is that even any way of truly trying to decide what judge would be best? So again, pros and cons to all. Right, that's right. And and you that that's actually a
2: good segue into sort of another problem or issue in judicial races which is the role of of money right right and campaign contributions because name recognition comes at a price comes with a right. price right you don't right. get a billboard for free you don't get right. a mail that shows up in your in your mailbox for free it costs money to get all of that done so right so how is that candidate even getting name recognition who's
0: paying for that and the vast majority of that money is probably coming from lawyers and law firms and and whatnot. or is or is that the case? I think that's probably true. Um, and there
2: was closer to where y'all live, um, a good, a good bit of press around that at this in the primary election anyway about the role of of contributions from potentially lawyers in a case or potentially parties in a case in judicial races. You know, and to that I would say it's a good question to ask and think about. But for the time being, it is the system that, right. that the, the judges in the system have been dealt and and have to work within and the driving force behind what has been a very consistent movement driven by the judiciary
1: to change the way that we elect judges in Texas. That the, ju- uh, the judiciary is the one that's pushing for it. It has, that's that has been
2: that has been true for over a century of uh, the reforms that that have been brought to the legislature. You know, every every one of the chief justices of the Texas Supreme Court has been for reform in this area. And it wow. just, um, you know, we had a, the legislature put together a big commission that came out with, a I think, over a year long study, consulted lots of stakeholders, did tons of research, and ultimately recommended some reforms. But the, as I say, the judiciary has always seen the problem problems in the plural with the current system. And our current Chief Justice, Nathan Hecht, gives a yearly ad- you know, State of the Judiciary address. And I just, if you'll indulge me, want to mention passage, read to you a passage from what he said on this subject in 2019, which was shortly after we had uh, the 2018 sweep. He writes here, and I'm going to quote from the State of the Judiciary Address to the 86th Legislature. Of the 80 intermediate appellate justices, 28 or 35% are new. A third of the 254 constitutional county court judges are new. A fourth of the trial judges, district county justices of the peace, are new. In all, I'm told, 443 Texas judges are new to their jobs. On the appellate and district courts alone, the Texas judiciary in the last election lost seven centuries of judicial experience at a single stroke. He goes on to say, no method of judicial selection is perfect, but merit selection followed by nonpartisan retention elections would be better.
0: So let's talk about merit selection with nonpartisan retention elections. Merit selection, obviously, somebody has to do that selecting. Could be the governor, it could be a commission, experts looking at the qualifications of judges. And then when they serve a first term, however long that is then they would stand for election by themselves and you would you would basically vote yes or no to whether we would retain that judge or justice so what what are the pros and cons of that
2: in that instance i guess if you look at the first step of that which is the how do you qualify a person or appoint a person there's you've got to think about who's the person doing the deciding right there are arguments for setting up some kind of bipartisan commission, committee, whatever you want to call it, to investigate potential candidates and sort of tee up maybe two or three for the ultimate decider, or maybe come up with their top choice. And people say, well, that won't work because those people will be partisan, or Mm -hmm. there will be cronyism that will infect that kind of process. Sure. I can't disprove that. I don't necessarily disagree that that politics, especially in today's environment, Mm -hmm finds its way into seemingly every little nook and cranny of the world. But I think that there's no perfect system that's, that's established, but would, would that be better? Perhaps.
0: Right.
1: You may not want to answer this, but do you feel like your politics play a part? And when you're judging on the bench?
2: No. And that is the whole point of judging, right? Right? We is that is that our branch is, the apolitical branch, is that our branch, the job of the judiciary is not to bend to the whim of politics of the day or the view of the majority this year or this decade, but to decide disputes in a way that is based on our body of law that's been developed over centuries and, and it is based on the law that the legislature is putting into effect in, in the by way of statutes. And so we, we are doing a different job than the other two branches are doing, and we ought to be. Mm-hmm.
1: Then why have confirmations over and over again? Why not, like the federal judges and justices, you get appointed and you're there. You have no worry. Why have that extra vote to of confidence, because if people aren't looking now and they're just using the R, the D, the L, the G, whatever's next to your name to vote for you, then what's the point? Maybe they should be for life or for, as I remind my students, actually good behavior. (laughs) It's not necessarily life, it's It's good behavior. (laughs) Right, right. Well, there
2: is this idea too, though, that's got to balance this desire for an independent judiciary against this idea that we don't want anyone in government who's completely unaccountable, right? So you want to have a mechanism for and good um, behavior, right? What, like, <laughs> for example, for, for a judge who just isn't doing the work or is doing the work in a way that's, that's not appropriate or, or gets into some, uh, or just, just has a misconduct, whatever it is, or plenty of reasons. All right. Or, or just becomes incompetent. We've impeached
1: enough people in the federal judiciary. It's just that we don't talk about them because it hasn't been in the last five years and you know history is too uh, annoying for the media. But you know because okay, it, correct me if I'm wrong. Nathan, Heck, isn't he going to be termed out during his term? What happens when he turns the age where he's no longer allowed to be on the court? He will, it's, it's not, uh, there's not. there's no term limit, but you do have
2: a maximum age limit. He will turn 74 and won't be able to finish out his term. So what will happen then is that he, you know, as we said earlier, that will be a departure during the six-year term to which he was elected. And so the, the governor will have an appointment. And so that, that position- Why
1: is no one talking about this? for real, the next governor will replace the Texas Supreme Court Chief Justice. And they're not even talking about this. I tell this to my students, they're like, are you sure? And I'm like, I'm pretty sure I understand the law. I think I know what I'm talking. Now I have it, it's on, it's recorded, please put that in, that's what happens, (laughs) he's gotta leave. So why not say at least finish out the term? You were elected, they think you're doing a good job because you got really, why can't he finish out his term? I mean, I think that is a
2: constitutional requirement.
1: Yes, it's insane.
2: So we could, I mean, you could
1: spearhead a constitutional amendment if you wanted. Yeah, Um, (laughs) there you go. So, you know, when you're making the change to the law, when you're making a change this, look at things like this, where here's a guy who ran. He's been on the court since 1988, if I'm not mistaken. I mean, he wasn't chief justice since 1980. He was promoted after, um, I mean, what was it was a few years back. I think 2013. Right, right, 2013. And so here we are. Here's somebody who gets reelected for a six-year term. We can't finish it out. So that's my question. Like, what if we did, I mean, why the next election? Why the election? Why do we, if we, they get on the court, why not and, just keep them on the
0: court? And to be clear, too, what something that we haven't said is that it this has to be run by the legislature—they're the ones that will propose any amendments to the constitution. I mean, we have know, to the they're guest. the ones, so it's—it's it's not like the the state courts can spearhead this. It's—it's it's not their purview. It's the—it's the legislature, and then of course the legislature is a, a political animal, so they—they're looking at. Not making their constituents mad with whatever they do, so it's yeah, but you're making
1: a change different. to the qualifications anyway. Yeah. Why isn't this part of the qualifications? Um, you know, I, yeah.
0: I might mean, sure. be off topic. I, I, but I I this one just way.
1: fascinates
2: me. Do you think there ought not be an age limit. I mean, there isn't one in the federal system, right? So we just see judges deciding for themselves when to retire.
1: Look, it's controversial. I know. I know that a lot of people wanted RBG to leave early because they wanted her place, her seat replaced by the right person. But if you are apolitical and your whole career is based on the legal field, the federal judiciary is apolitical and you're doing your job and she's competent, she stayed and then she passed. So so yeah, I mean, 74 is different for every person. 74 can be highly, I mean, what from 73 to 74 he became senile and can't do his job I'm just asking I am just putting it out there I, don't I got a couple people I think at 54 need to retire but but yeah I mean I when I look at the whole system and again I mean my focus I have not been to Arkansas I don't know the different systems people ask me all the time and I'm like look I've lived in different states but that's not when I was studying it so to my thought today's 74 is not the same as it was in 1850. Today's 74 is somebody who wants to get up and keep working, who wants to keep doing their job. Why the arbitrary number? Why not? Well, get I, I mean, I mean, I think that's just a fact of history,
2: right? I mean, it, I, I don't disagree with you. In the case of Nathan Hecht, he is a machine. Uh, <laughs> and he, wor- you know, he's extremely hardworking and he's very capable, and he leads our judiciary, but he also leads the National Center for State Courts, and he's very, very active, and he gets a lot done, and I and I would argue he could get a lot more done at 75 than, than you know, <laughs> most of the rest of us. And yes, because- I mean when
1: you're going through the requirements, when you have this commission that's talking, and unlike you studious, wonderful people, I didn't read that. It was long. Like my attention spans not nearly as long as y'all's apparently. So, like, did they talk <laughs> about it? Did they say, "Hey, you know, seventy four is arbitrary. Let's fix this while we're fixing some other things"? Did they?
2: You know, I don't, I I don't know. I don't know. I, I haven't
1: heard a lot of. I haven't heard a lot
2: of consternation about uh, the age out um requirement
1: in in the constitution seems fascinating to me because that i mean my gravy what i tell my students joe biden could not have been your court on the court right isn't he too old
0: yeah i I, I think think we should we should spearhead a constitutional (laughs) amendment in which at the very least they get to serve out their term of office if they go past 74. 74 should be when you run for office take office that last term i don't know 80s eighties, the new 60s 80s new, new 60 right absolutely
1: i mean just some of these you look through the qualifications and i mean a lot of the qualifications just seem super arbitrary it just doesn't seem and you're telling me that the you know the judiciary hasn't liked it for a long time people who sit on the court have not liked this for a long time but that you know, that's just one. The partisan elections obviously is huge. I worked for a private company for 12 years and we never donated to any campaigns. That was one of our big things that we would never donate to campaigns and all. And you could feel it every now and again. Um, I worked for a residential construction company. So anytime, and I forgot what it was called, but they used to have that board where before you could sue us, you'd have to go to that commission and, and you like, the Perry group was on there and all the different home builders were on there, except for ours. And so we'd always get Ryan to the deal there, but we never donated. That was one of our big things. And, um, you know, so get the partisan out of there. That's fine. But why elect at all? Why not? I think the federal system works. Am I wrong? Ben doesn't like the
0: federal that, system. Well, I, it's not that I don't like it. It's just that we, we don't study enough the fact that it's, well, maybe we do, but it's, it's political at this point. It's become political even at the federal level so maybe well, it's always been a, a political was, at the federal level well, i mean when
1: you're when you're identifying like this i love this idea of just applying like I, mm-hmm. at the lower levels it's got to be somebody in the house or in the senate who's got the names and where do they get the names they get the names from the attorney generals or the governors who have people right i mean it's not like there's an application process in the federal system saying i think i'm qualified you should look at me it's who you know it's How you've lived your life, you know, KBJ, she's been on the radar for a while. That's why she's there, right? It's not like all of a sudden they just walked around and said who applied for the job. And so I, I don't, I see that it works. Yeah, it's political at the lower levels, but they get vetted out. You don't think, I mean, do you think that we have a court right now that's filled with political hacks? Just because they were nominated Are you asking by the political, yeah, I mean, me? the federal system is working, man.
0: I don't know that they're political hacks, but, but the process is political. I, I really, I think, I think it is. All you have to do is look at the last, what, four or five confirmation hearings to see that it's political but we're getting we're getting too far afield <laughs> from what we're here I can to fix the talk system about in
1: one just, stroke of the pen no requirements court. whatsoever appointed this, with confirmation we're good let's it, copy I think yes. it one, feels one like little the nuance i'm sorry
2: go ahead, go ahead. Uh, one little nuance we haven't talked about is new in texas which is that um we the legislature recently eliminated the straight ticket Right. You yeah, the ability to right. vote straight, straight party ticket. And so that, that is new. And I, I feel like we don't really have good enough data to understand whether it is moving the needle in in any in either direction. Uh, but that is one sort of small step to toward getting this away from, from being a sort of nakedly partisan election. Looking at the-
1: Oh, you so think it's so a I, good so thing? So I applaud that,
2: so I applaud that.
1: You really do, interesting.
0: Well, looking at the report though, that was one of the concerns was that people wouldn't vote down ballot, but it it looks like if I'm reading this this table correctly, that still upward of 97% of people are still voting down ballot for the judges, even without the straight ticket voting.
1: The higher court judges though, right?
0: No, um, well, okay, yes, uh, down to court of appeals. Yeah, I mean, down ballot, like really down ballot with district judges and and justice of the peace and whatnot. But still, it would you know at least people are voting, but you, it makes you wonder what are they thinking about as they, as they vote, you well,
2: know. let's take a survey. I mean, if yeah. you what do you do in the ballot box? Do you vote if you don't know if you don't know either of the candidates in the judicial race or do you skip the or do you just not vote for either if you don't know I them?
1: personally get a um, voter guide. I love getting a voter guide. I spend many, many days researching and highlighting because I can't remember anything <laughs> like luckily we're on zoom otherwise i'd forget men's name and so like i mean i'm highlighting people all the way down and then i take that with me and that's what i vote for i do not vote for unopposed people
0: <laughs> that don't need me
1: and i don't vote for people who don't respond to the voter guide that annoys me
0: yeah that annoys me too
1: it's like hi wow. give me something to go on and so right. i and that's what i teach my students i mean i don't tell my students to do what i do but i teach my students about the voter guide i think that is one of the best requirements or best um uh, the law that allows us to take that in. I mean, in Texas, that's amazing to me because we have so many people. So that's what I do. I definitely study them.
0: If we're going to have elections, I feel like you do need to have the cheat sheet. At the very least, at the very least, you can say, well, this person has an R or this person has a D by their name. So they, they must generally feel this way Or that way.
1: It's not political. It's a law. And now it's interesting because it's not, you know, it's not going to go to the criminal area. I mean, what you raise a really good point to think about if
2: you're thinking about the United States as a whole, and that is that Texas does have this bifurcated system. And that's pretty unusual as far as state judiciaries go. That the high court. Uh, that hears criminal cases in texas it's called the court of criminal appeals and they're a sister court just across the hall sit in the same building you
1: ever want to jump over there and be like what you got
0: what's
1: going on i got an opinion
0: well the only what's the only other state jessica that has a bifurcated court of last resort we
1: used to have eight that were i know yeah but there's only one other isn't it oklahoma Oklahoma. Oklahoma?
0: it's oklahoma they
1: another place i try not to go
0: I, I always tell my students they they have to follow us, you know. <laughs> I don't
1: little, know what else. Little to do. brother,
0: we hopefully ask, I'm not.
1: We should ask Justice Huddle where she's from before we make that joke.
0: Oh, I, I know where she's from. She's from no, El Paso. I'm, I'm a Texan.
2: I'm a native Texan <laughs> <from El> Paso. <laughs> you know,
1: okay. I, oh, that's right, El Paso. I read that. I yeah. was born in Houston, so you lived in Houston for a long time. And I just thought that was funny. <laughs>
0: I'm the like, only been, non-native.
1: Non, yeah. Arkansas. And why you where got you here as from, quick you as from. you You're can. from Arkansas? You're from Little Rock.
0: From. Yeah, I grew up in Little Rock. Let's get back to talking about judicial selection. There is, we do have the Chief Justice on record talking about wanting to have a merit selection with a retention election, and of course there are other there are other options, just a straight appointment process probably from a governor, and then having a, a essentially lifetime tenure. I, I think most Texans would probably not like that, not being the, being the person who's not from Texas uh, in this conversation, but I think they would rather have the ability to keep somebody or not keep somebody. But what are the pros and cons of that? They, basically the federal way of selecting judges and justices.
2: Yeah, I think there is some sense that, you know, part of being a Texan is deeply embedded sense that, yeah. that, that p- power to the people and that the people ought to have a voice in deciding who, who is, is, is running government on, on the people's behalf. And that extends to the third branch. And so I think that it's a, a cultural, deeply embedded, right. historical kind of feature of, of who we are uh, as a state.
0: But at the same time, I don't think that the people shouldn't have all the say. Uh, Hamilton talks about this in the Federalist paper. You can't have a tyranny of the majority. You can't have a, a electorate that's driven by passions. And the courts ought not to be driven by the passions of the day. And so really what we're talking about is how do we keep the passions of the day out of the courts, but at the same time, make sure that the judges and the justices that we we are selecting are eminently qualified, and and those two things aren't really a lot of times aren't compatible.
2: Right, I, I I think that's right. You you hit the nail on the head, and and you got there pretty quickly. I mean, this this commission we talked about that the eighty sixth legislature put together spent, it was composed of. All, all kinds of stakeholders from very tenured um, um, practitioners to legislators to former Chief Justice Phillips, former Chief Justice Wallace Jefferson. I mean, lots of very smart people, very well versed in our legal system, put their heads together. And, and I think at the end of the day, not all that surprising that they couldn't agree on a single best Method. Right. I mean, if you look at the if you look at the outcomes and recommendations of all of that process and all of that reporting, we we're left with two kind of contradictory uh, recommendations. One is that a majority of the commissioners reject recommend against continuing the system we've got. Right. So yeah. most are like, this is not the way to go. This is not the ideal system. On the other hand, a majority recommend again recommend against the adoption. Of a nonpartisan judicial selection system. Right. And so it, it's just it's a complex problem. And I, and I feel like I'm not really answering your question to mm. say w- what is the, the one right and best way to do and this. I'm none. not sure that I'm not sure there is one. There's not. There, there, there's not a perfect system. That what everyone agreed on was right. you know adopting the minimum, you know, increasing the minimum qualifications, and that helps some. Sure, sure. Um, but, but it doesn't really get at it, get it, the problem um, that is, I think, the most damaging to the judiciary, which is to have these sweeps and have just a massive amount of turnover. I mean, imagine in your, in your college, if one third of all of the staff and all of the faculty turned over in one day for reasons completely untethered to merit. Right, right, or, right. Or qualification or ability. I mean, that's damaging to the institution. It also creates a real disincentive for other people to want to come to work there. Right. If they think that they, you know, their prospects are partly what they make of it, but also partly in the hands of the whims. you know, a, a serious qualified person qualified to be a judge may not want to take that
1: gamble just to be clear because again my knowledge and they don't talk all about this so i tried to teach it because when i teach federally i was talk about you know all the weird things that happen behind the scenes and how they have conference and how they select clerks That that stuff i was fascinated with that's what i studied in in college so and yours, do you we can talk does about your, that, too. I
2: love that, too. Um, well, no, but
1: your staff, I mean, does your staff then leave with you? So when there's a wave like that, do the staffers leave or do they work for the court? Um, like, do the clerks, the clerks are just there for a year, so obviously they would leave, but like when you said there's a wave and people go out, I mean, there's no staff that stays behind? I mean, sure,
2: sure. Oh, okay. um, I mean, it, it depends, right? I mean, it, it depends. And the staff would make their own choice. About whether to stay or go.
1: No, I'm um, say by that. So, like when you, when you, but, but got I mean, if you, if
2: you just think of an institution, not a court, like your own institution, right, if, right. One, if there was one-third turnover from one day to the next, that would not be nothing for your institution. Uh, is my point? Is that? No,
1: I agree. I totally agree. And it, weirdly enough, and not say anything about the judges, but if our assistants left, that would probably be way worse than if, yeah, we, you know what I'm saying? Like sure. the, if I for ask sure. my boss how to submit something, she'll be like, hang on, let me ask my assistant. So that's why I'm like, does everybody leave with you? Or do they, when you came in and were appointed, did you get the last staff and they decided, well, I don't like this woman, I'm not working for her. And then they left. Or did they stay to see who would be appointed? Is that how it works? In my case, when I
2: went on the Supreme Court, that it was Paul Green, Justice Green, who had retired, and his staff, longtime staff attorney, retired at the same time. Ouch! And so I, I did come in and, and have to uh, restaff with the with the new staff attorney, which is you know the permanent staff lawyer who helps me. I did keep his clerks on. I, he had a great pair of clerks he had hired, and so they worked for me for the second half of the of the term. And then I I hired for, you know, the forward for the next term. Uh, But it's just a mix. And it's just dependent on on whether staff uh, want to say or
1: right, Right. Yeah. I mean, I used to have um, secretaries and whatnot. So I totally get I just that's fascinating. So I'm sorry, Ben. Go ahead.
0: No, no, no. It is fascinating. It's it's fun to look at. I was just going to talk about the election in 2018, in which we know the national politics Really filtered down. I, well, this is my opinion. You know, I'm sure other, you know, it really filtered down into the just Texas races and we lost 443 Texas judges. So we know you, where
1: they are. They're just not. Well, okay. That's right.
0: true. <laughs> we, right. we lost them from the bench.
1: Thank you. Let's not go extreme yeah, here. We lost they them went from missing. the bench.
0: Oh. There's, okay. but doing good work arguing cases and doing good work maybe. wherever they are. Um, but but now, 2022. All all indication is there's going to be a Republican wave election, and so it'll be interesting to see does that filter down into Texas, um, you know, politics all the way down to district court judges and the ju- and the Texas judiciary. And that really, you have to think about that when you're running for one of these positions.
2: Um, yeah. Well, I think that I mean you'd be a fool not to.
0: Right. But that's right. a political, that becomes a political calculation. And do we want our judges making political calculations like that? It's it's a catch-22.
2: We, we've talked about this week before, Ben, ben you and I have. And uh, there are great judges who are Democrats, and there are Republican judges who are not so great at their job. And mm-hmm. and the, the, the those come and go in our system without regard to any of the merits. Well, any of their merits or, or qualifications or work ethics or impartiality or any of the things we would like to see ideally in our judges, there just is a disconnect between those qualities and whether a particular judge wins and stays or loses right. and goes. And that's, that that's exactly the races. tragedy of the system. I mean, if there's, if there's, if there's one thing, you know, I, I would want you to hear me say it's that that's the tragedy of the system is if there is no, it's just untethered your qualifications and merit are untethered to the outcome. And that's, that's the tragedy. Uh,
0: Just playing devil's advocate just for a second.
1: You do a whole commercial that talks all about your ethics.
0: People love that. (laughs) Oh yeah, that would be, that'd be a barn burner. How does one know whether a judge, like how would a lay person who does not live and breathe this, how would they ever know whether a judge is doing a good job or not doing a good job? You know, I barely can know, and I follow this as much as any professor probably does. So that brings up another question of how do you know a judge is doing well or not doing well? So maybe we do just leave it to the people to make that decision, but they don't know. They don't, they don't name anybody. The only person they can ever name, no, you know, granted, these are 18, 19, 20 year olds, but, but the only person they can name is, is the president. In like the pandemic, life.
1: I've had a lot of them name the county judges. And then you're like, really? yeah, well, your county judge in Dallas and your county judge in Colin aren't actually doing any judicial work.
2: They don't function as judges. And that's And know. that's
1: what I'm telling you, the the pandemic, the only thing I get is now they're like, hey, I know my county judge. And I'm like, yeah, okay, yeah, he doesn't do judicial stuff. Moving on to the ju- judicial branch. And they're like, what?
2: <laughs>
1: no, it's true, but like the campaign. And it, I was, I mean, I was joking, but it's true. I mean, you'd have to do a campaign ad that said this is what I do. But that's not the dog whistle that the people are looking for. How many people you put in jail? You know, how many put you put, they don't understand the Supreme Court. They don't understand that you're not like, did, did you let that murderer off when he was supposed to be on death row? And you let, that's not even your area. I mean, you'd have to, have, that's one thing I think that the Texas legislature did really well when they required Texas government to be taught in college. I mean, I really do think that that, I think in 10 years, you're going to get an electorate that's significantly more, at least have heard more about Texas government in these different areas than you did when I went to school. I didn't have this class at all when I went to school. I'm so have.
2: encouraged to hear that. I'm so encouraged to hear. I you went to UT
1: Arlington. Course. UT Arlington did not, I had a guy local science was my major and he was a bear, he was a ranger in Montana and he showed us bear pictures. That's what we did. We did not learn anything about Texas Constitution or law. I mean, not even the basics that I taught before the law changed. You know what I'm saying? So I really think this is one of the only ways to get to where Ben wants, where the election it knows what's going on.
2: I really really couldn't agree with you more um, on that point. I think we need civics education just in far, far, far more abundance than we have. I mean, we're in this state where we can find out any piece of information we have at our fingertips, and yet one of the most crucial things about our whole society, our whole civilization, is how our government functions and we don't push literacy. We don't emphasize literacy in government and civics. And so I am. I applaud that you are teaching that. I applaud that you are working um, um, to really have improve, improve the level of education. You know, that, that's what it's about. We're all supposed to be engaged in government. We're all supposed to exercise our responsibility to, to use our own power as, as individual citizens to dictate how our government operates. That's the whole idea.
0: I agree with you. It's sorely neat, especially at the local level.
1: Well, and I know that you might not like um, the politics of the day, but I can tell you that my students today are way more knowledgeable about the presidency and how that Mm -hmm. comes about because of the 2016 election, because of the twenty. 20 election. These are things like they come in with a lot more knowledge than I've had in the past, and a lot more questions and more curious. And so, yeah, the 2018 wave, the people who have, know about it, and um, if taught correctly, can really generate interest. So yeah, it might've been a problem, but I think big things like that really do make people wonder, oh, wait a second, there was a big shift, wasn't there? What did that do to the government? What happened to all the court cases that were in line to be heard? What happened to the things that had been heard and hadn't been decided, things like that. So you know, big shifts like that sometimes in politics can have benefits, I think, if, if done well. I mean, that's the other problem.
2: Well, and to your point about sources, I mean, I do think you have to start local and do the work to find a source that you trust and a source that has done the work of really vetting people. And there are tons. There are, you know, you have to, but you have to find, as I say, a source. It can be anything. It can be, it can be things that arrive in your mailbox. I don't, you, you mentioned a voter guide earlier. I think those are all useful except that those those may have their own slant to them. And so, you know, what I think and, and what, I, what I have said, I have a dear friend who's a professor who, who says that her system is to kind of lay them all out yes. in a row. And she says doing that, you can see that certainly there are people who are overwhelmingly the better candidate, right, regardless <laughs> of some, which source is talking about them. And then some that are mixed where you just have to make up your own mind, but it's at least kind of surveying the landscape of of who people recommend. So I think that's a great strategy. I
1: think that's what those justices who get kicked out after they get too old should do. They should create a whole like, how to, no? (laughs) We need to talk to him. He's gonna create a book and then, no, but you know, that's a good point too one of the downsides of the politics and the media, and of course, um, Trump was just better at it than Sarah Palin was, because she what, She said lamestream media and that didn't catch on nearly as good as fake news. But, um, you know, when I even when I talk about voter guides, I put examples up on the board and I'll, you'll hear like somebody, oh, that's like liberal, that's conservative. I'm like, yeah, that's a liberal one. That's a conservative one. And that's one that's nonpartisan. That's the point of showing that there are different ones. That's also an excellent point. I think that when you're looking at the requirements, if you, are you guys planning on doing another one of these to like, or are you going to wait and see if this made it better or, or to change the constitution? I mean, it got passed almost anything you put in front of the people will get passed in the constitutional amendment. It's only 3% of us that are showing up. So why not just push for the, why not go all the way to the end? What happened with that report that you guys read so diligently? Like, did they not say, let's just get rid of it and go to appointments in the merit base?
0: Right. I mean, this really for the legislature, isn't it? I
1: think that's exactly right. Our role is not to make up new
2: rules that's firmly within the legislature's province. But I think that desire and the need and, and drive to study this will continue because to echo what, what the Chief Justice said again, but I, I think it is it is destabilizing and it creates disincentives for qualified candidates to come forward if they think they're just going to have their legs chopped out from under them. If you, you know If you have had a nice career and you're a serious lawyer and it's a lot to leave your practice that you have built up over the course of a couple of decades, to do a job, where as honorable and noble a thing as it is to serve the public, you're just going to find yourself um, um, tossed out on the street with no job one day, without regard to anything that you did or how good a job you've done. I mean, I think that's a real disincentive, and a and a real a real problem is as our state judiciary is aging and nearing the age of retirement. I mean, it is. If you think about it from an institutional perspective, something we need to do is figure out how to sort of attract a younger generation of Texas judges.
1: Do You see a lot of people going from the lower up, and up like you did, or is that, I'm not very familiar with, I like, I'm glad I class. I can name maybe three people, so.
2: Certainly, the chief justice was a trial judge, a court of appeals judge before he got on the Supreme Court. I was a court of appeals judge. And let me go around the table and count of the uh, except for two. So seven, I'm counting six of the nine of us on the Supreme Court, for example, had served on a court on a lower court before going on the Supreme Court. So that's very um, common. Yes. Yeah. I mean, in my perspective, from my perspective, yes, I I think it was useful. I came to the Supreme Court. I, I had already been a court of appeals judge and spent six years doing that job. So I had opinions before. I'm not saying it's a necessary prerequisite, but for me, it it was a helpful stepping stone.
0: But You you brought up a really great point in that, you know, if you wanted, if Bob, who's a lawyer and qualified, uh, wants to get onto the Texas Supreme Court, but is not going to get appointed, you've got to ramp up a statewide election like that's daunting, you know, even some of the, because you've got to build up your name recognition. You've got to do, you've got to, I mean, this is a big state. You've got to go from one from El Paso all the way to Texarkana. I mean, that, that would be, I wouldn't want to do that. So in some ways getting appointed gives you that a little leg up to run a statewide election.
2: I think anyone who's ever been uh, involved in a campaign would say it's better to be the incumbent.
0: Absolutely.
1: Can people like just send you a letter if they want to lobby you for something? I'm just curious because the books make it seem like in Texas, you can directly lobby anybody you want. And I'm like, yeah, your legislators, your executive, I get that. But come on, they're not like, I can't write you a letter and be like, look, my friend's on trial in front of you. He's a good guy. That's not a thing, right? Well, have you ever
2: heard uh, I mean, have you ever heard read an amicus brief?
1: No, that I get, but in the books, it literally makes it sound like direct contact with you guys. And that's some crap. Come on.
2: I do I do occasionally get letters um, you know, from a from a prisoner or or sometimes from a constituent, sometimes from a really? group um yeah
1: yeah but the know, books they- literally I mean when you read the books and like Ben said we had to learn this stuff. I mean I was in I did civil law for 12 years but I mean it's like residential construction stuff right I'm not getting to y'all's level and so they just make it seem like just like the governor you can just show up to his office and demand a meeting and I'm like mm. it seems awkward i'm not coming to your office that's there people aren't just showing up and knocking on the door are they no people okay. are not and rewrite uh, these books ben we got to do a book
0: yeah we should do the a real book. world um te- texas poli- the real texas the politics. real texas yeah go.
1: they do i mean because be you know great. you teach lobbying and i'm like uh direct contact well, I, you know i will say there is quite a
2: number of professors who who write in and say boy i see you're handling a case on this ex- issue and let me tell you that the right way to decide it is like this and not
0: like that. Look, I, I thought we had discussed that you wouldn't discuss any of my letters that I wrote.
1: Yeah, Ben, I've trying tried to get you
0: harassing her. I tell
1: my students all the time, <laughs> I can tell you what the law says, I can't tell you what happens in court. That's somebody else's problem. And that's no they always want legal advice from us, don't they, Ben? I know, like, they how they do I get out know, of you stuff? Better better not giving Find legal a
0: real advice. lawyer.
1: I that's play one I mean. on TV.
0: Thank you so very much, Justice Huddle.
2: Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. It was a pleasure to be with you.
1: It was fun. Thank you. All my crazy questions. I appreciate it. Oh, my gravy. I want her to be on again and again and I want her to uh, let me ask her all my bizarre questions. She was phenomenal.
0: She just she's just so great and I love getting to talk to her. And honestly the thanks goes to my former professor when I was in law school, Justice Rhonda Wood of the Arkansas Supreme Court who uh, introduced me to Justice Huddle and I'm just so happy that she could come on the show and talk to us because we just we don't know enough about the courts and what they do and it's it's really insightful and I think that if you want to be a good citizen if you want to be a model citizen you really have to know what it is that the courts do and how they affect policy and how they affect everyday things that we do.
1: And, you know, I, I I get it that it's really hard to talk to um, federal judges and justices because, you know, they wouldn't kind of stay away from the politics and whatnot, but I um, I guess that was the one thing that I do like, even though I think it must be awful having to run for office on your party. It was nice that she was more than willing to come in and interact and talk and said that she does that a lot. She goes around trying to meet as many people as, as possible. I mean, they we are her constituents. And I think that if more people thought of those in government like that, maybe they would care a little bit more. So hopefully um, with the new law requiring people to take Texas government, you know, in another 10 years or so, we'll have a little bit more engaged society.
0: Hey, thanks for joining us for that great conversation. And if you like what you heard, please hit that subscribe button. And if you have time, rate and review the show. In the next couple of months, we plan to talk about the primary results in Texas and around the country and what it might mean for the general elections in the November midterms. We also will be discussing the potential landmark opinion in the Dobbs case that may overturn Roe and Casey and what it might mean for abortion laws going forward. Again, thanks for joining us and listening, and we'll see you next time.